Hello and welcome to Stupid Sequence, the show where we make ranked lists of things that don't matter because arguing with your friends is fun. I'm your host, Josh. And I'm your host, Scott. This is our sixth episode, and we'll start with a quick summary of what the show is. Goal of each episode is to create a ranked list of something, usually media-related. Scott and I will pick a topic before the show and each come prepared with a list of ten. In the first segment, we'll talk about the first five items from each of our lists in detail why we feel they fit the list, why they're special to us, or maybe some interesting facts about them. From there, we'll use the second segment to briefly mention the remaining items on our separate list before going head-to-head and arguing over which items belong in the official top ten. This week, we are talking about, as we teased last week, the best video games from the year 1998, considered by many to be the best year for the industry. Going over found a list here of 598 different games that came out that year. I I don't know that I agree that this is the best year for gaming. I don't know that I do either. Looking through the list, there are several, several games that are missing, in my opinion. I, I did not look at other years. That makes sense. But 1996 came up a few times in kind of peripheral research that i was doing mm-hmm. so i i'd be curious and maybe this is a topic for another episode down the line top 10 years of video game releases eh. yeah that's uh let me tell you what that's a hefty episode oh yeah that's a that's talk about a lot of different things 2011 that's a good year i'm telling you right now Dark Souls, baby. Um, but that's not the year we're talking about. We're talking about 1998. And while I mm. would agree that this is a great year for gaming, to be sure, I just don't know that it's it's the best. But there's a lot of fantastic games that came out that year. There's at least a few. I have a list of ten. As do I. Hmm. So we um we have part of the show. If you've listened before, you know we have an impartial third party judge that inspects both Scott and I's list. Scott and I don't look at each other's list to try to preserve, you know, that discussion for the show. Uh, the impartial judge looks at our list and tries to tell us if there's any duplicates so we know how many items we need to talk about going into the show. Um, shockingly, I'm genuinely shocked here. We have no duplicates in the top five. But I'm told that there are a couple of duplicates across the ten from one of our top fives. Yeah, so we will uh we'll have to see as the show goes on here, but um but for now, that just leaves us with starting with number 5 on each of our lists. Mm-hmm. So, Scott, why don't you start with your number 5? Yes, number 5 for me. So, this one this video game, as it were, is kind of a unique addition to the list, starting off not controversially, but definitely not in the norm of consoles i'm going with number five spider solitaire oh wow okay so very very odd this game was released in june 25th 1998 for obviously microsoft pc it was bundled as part of the windows 90 or excuse me 
Microsoft Plus 98. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are versions of this game that were included in much later versions of Windows, ME, XP. I mean, there's spiritual successors to it in even later versions now. But uh, for this game, the main connection and draw for me, every single time I visited my grandpa, he was doing three things. Drinking beer, watching bowling, and playing Spider Solitaire or Free Cell on his computer. Yeah, see, my grandpa's go-to was, uh, was, was Free Cell. Uh, both of which are good, but Spider Solitaire, watching him play, even though I didn't always want to play, seeing him play made me want to play. And so as a result, one of the earliest games I had access to was mostly Solitaire-type games. And Spider or Free Cell, between the two of them, were my, my top games, for sure. I do have a, a few interesting tidbits about this game. So the game itself was first mentioned in a 1917 book called Culbertson's Card Game Complete with Official Rules. Hmm. It, it was written by a famous bridge player, Eli Culbertson, uh, but it is not clear whether he was the inventor or if he was actually just mentioning the rules because it was a known solitaire game at the time. The first reference to the spider solitaire as we know it today appeared in 1949. And the history of its name is also disclosed around this time because the spider in its name comes from the eight foundations the player needs to build in order to win the game. So there are eight stacks of cards. Uh, as in the number of legs a spider has, or eyes, I suppose. The game fell under the radar, though, after 1949, and it really didn't show up in mass popularity until 1998, once it was included in Microsoft Windows software. That's when it got the wider audience, and it it became immediately successful. It is the second most popular version of Solitaire, only behind the classic version, which is also known as Klondike. But most people just know it as Solitaire, even though it is officially Klondike. But it's yeah, I would imagine that's I would imagine that's probably because of Windows again. Yes, also because of Windows. Uh, fun fact about this game, a detailed study has been done on the solvability of Spider Solitaire games using a special software. And the winning chances in a normal game with good to fair play are considered to be about one in three. So Hmm. 33% of the time it's solvable, roughly. So I have a, I have a fun, I mentioned earlier, my grandpa's go-to for this was free cell. Um, We did play a decent amount of spider solitaire too. And um, these games in one of the versions of windows that they put out, I don't know that it was the original 98 one, but um, it like tracks your win loss rate over the course of, uh, games mm-hmm. and my grandpa found out that if you force quit um uh, a specific uh in one of these games uh when you have found out that you cannot win it doesn't record your loss record <laughs> so my grandpa cheats at his win loss record in card games on the computer we're really not sure why uh, um no yeah, one's no, looking nobody's at tracking him. that game yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's not like a leaderboard or anything but that's what he does no, but if there were, he would be on the top with an asterisk. Yeah. Yeah. The Mark McGuire, the Barry Bonds of 
Hans Niemann. Ooh. Oh, okay. Yeah, relevant reference. reference there. How about that? Yes. All right. All right. So, yeah, that's my number five, uh, Spider Solitaire. There, there's just a lot of my childhood, early childhood, that's tied to seeing my grandpa play this game and then going home and just playing it for hours. I mean, we didn't always have reliable internet, so having a game that was just accessible on the computer was nice, and so I probably played this game equal share to Free Cell. I always liked Spider Solitaire more than Free Cell, personally. I never really clicked with Free Cell. I played a lot of Spider Solitaire in the, um, um, that space-themed pinball yes. game that they had yep. on there, too. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, pinball... 2000 or something like that i can't remember exactly but i know exactly i know the game you're talking about because i have played that sure. a ton as well 90s kids know Woo-hoo. so yeah that's my number five spider solitaire fun game uh brings back some memories and uh we can move on to your number five well it's certainly not what i was expecting but you know it, it's a good game i enjoy it i have uh i have a similarly unexpected one in uh in my honorable mentions eventually Ooh. when we get there uh but for my number five i'm going with a um the only ps1 game in my top five Ooh. uh we're talking about konami computer entertainment's metal gear solid hmm. this game is uh truly an all-time classic uh basically it's it's very far from the first stealth game in fact this is the third overall game put out in the Metal Gear series, mainline series. Um, Metal Gear Solid is actually the sequel to the MSX, um, which is a Japanese computer, uh, had Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2, uh, both still made by Hideo Kojima, the creator of, uh, of the whole series, um, and then eventually brought that series back from the, I want to say, late 80s, uh, with with Metal Gear Solid on the PS1. This absolutely transformed what stealth games were doing for the 3D, that initial 3D era of video games. Um, one of the biggest things that it did was um, it's a huge focus on narrative. Tajima is the type of kind of auteur who really loves, he loves action movies and spy thrillers and all these different kinds of American films. And so he's really trying to do his own version of something like that in a video game. And he's pretty successful at it, honestly, especially in this first game. A lot of people's mileage may vary on some of the later Metal Gear games, just in terms of the story, because he gets very, very absurd with just how goofy a lot of it gets and how over the top and, and uh, very lore heavy and everything. But original. Metal Gear Solid is kind of just this cool spy action uh, stealth game where uh, your character, Solid Snake, is uh, trying to break into this facility, Shadow Moses, in, uh, on an Alaskan island and uh, stop a terrorist threat, basically. Because if terrorists are going anywhere, it's Alaska. Well, see, they're like taking o- they've taken over this military base and they're going to use that to launch attacks. And so the big... The big deal of why they're invading this one is these kind of uh, these uh, walking tanks that are called Metal Gears, and that's where Shadow Moses is where they're developing this Metal Gear. 
which you find out over the course of the game. I, I was gonna mention here, wasn't really relevant on Spider Solitaire. We're gonna have spoilers for these games. It's gonna happen. They're these from 1998. From 1998. You've had a <laughs> lot of years to play these games, so you know. I guess if you're if you're concerned about spoilers, skip ahead a little bit when we're mm. talking about a specific game. But uh, nearly but, yeah. 25 years ago. Yeah, it's uh. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into spoilers here. So, um, but yeah, metal they they they're finding the Metal Gear here and everything, and that's kind of what the central conflict is around. Um, this game has really incredibly memorable characters, and especially what the big standout here is a lot of the boss fights. Um, you know, boss boss fights are a standout in gaming that goes way back into the '80s and everything. But um, I think one of the things that Metal Gear Solid does is it makes it feel like the bosses are actual. Ca- some of the bosses, anyway, are actual characters in the stories versus just an enemy that you're taking down. Um, and then an additional thing with this that makes it so compelling is these. This is certainly not the first fully voiced video games in terms of voice acting, but certainly one of the earlier ones that are kind of on this level of of cinematic storytelling that the game's going for, and having it be fully voiced as opposed to you're just reading text off a screen was kind of revolutionary in this context. Uh, one of the other things I want to mention here is uh, the one of the boss fights that you go through in the game is a very unique experience. Those of you who played it probably already know which one I'm going to mention. This is the Psycho Mantis fight, who's a boss who has psychic powers. And one of the things that the game does is it messes with you on a hardware meta level, kind of. At one point, uh, Psychomantis, the character, uses his psychic abilities, he says, to find out things about you, the player, and asks you if you, what different video games you enjoy. What's actually happening there is the PlayStation is reading your memory card and picking games that you have saves for. But he asks you, it's like, oh, I see you like Castlevania, because if you've got the save game <laughs> for that. And, and if you don't know what that's what's going on behind the scenes... You know, especially as like a kid in 1998, you're like, holy cow, how does he know? You know, <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a fun thing that they do there. Um, and uh, he'll he'll say that he's using his um, telekinesis to move your controller and it makes the controller vibrate or he'll make you plug a controller into a different controller port, that kind of stuff. So just stuff video games weren't doing at the time and honestly haven't done much of since. Because that, that gimmick only works so many times, you know, but um, just really interesting, neat, creative ideas that this game was doing. It's pretty fun. I have not played Metal Gear Solid, but of course I'm very familiar with the main character and uh, the inclusion in a few other games, Smash Brothers. Sure, absolutely. <clears throat> so, yeah, I guess I can see why you put that on there. Never really played it myself, like I said, but it sounds like it's pretty good um, yeah I, and I, honestly I, I feel like it still holds up today they put out a sort of a remastered version of it on the GameCube called Metal Gear Solid Twin Snakes uh, and that is somewhat of a controversial remake because they add a lot of cutscenes to it and there are a lot more anime over the top goofy stuff than what's in the original game uh, but if you if you're just looking to play the game in higher fidelity than the original 1998, very low quality polygons, you know, revolutionary for the time certainly graphics wise, but for today certainly visually does not hold up. 
um, that version is going to look quite a bit better. Good pick. Good explanation. I was not aware of the, psych- as you said, Psychomantis. Psychomantis, yes. That fight is something I was not aware of. It also kind of clicked for me on a different level. Uh, the term Shadow Moses. Mm-hmm. It's not something I had heard in that context before, but there is a band that I like that has a song called Shadow Moses, and it probably is a reference to that now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I would imagine that is a it's a pretty specific phrase. Hmm. Cool. All right. Well, why don't we move on to your number four? Sure. Number four, ripping off the Band-Aid, 1080 snowboarding. All right. Here we go. That's a game. February 28th, 1998. So this game was one of the original games that I got when I got a Nintendo 64. And it was also one of the few initial games that I had that was two player. And so my brother and I could play against each other, race against each other, or I think there were trick modes where you could compete against each other. And and so it was one that we played a fair amount, I would say. Uh, For those who don't know, it is a snowboarding game. Players control snowboarders in try to do either tricks or racing. And there's also... I think there were training modes where you could try to attempt some of the different tricks. The the objective of the game is obviously to either arrive quickly at the finish line or get maximum points for trick combinations. Now, in 1080, there are two trick modes, trick attack and contest, and players accrue points for completed tricks. The game features 24 tricks and five secret tricks all of which are performed by using a combination of the different buttons on the controller and point values are assigned based on the complexity or combos or time. Uh, There are two primary types of tricks, both spin tricks and grab tricks. The 1080 spin requires nine actions to complete and it is the most of any trick in the game. And I believe that's where they deemed it was most feasible based on current real-life abilities of professional snowboarders at the time. Tony Hawk could only ever do the 900. Well, he's not a snowboarder. It's a little bit different. True. So yeah, fantastic game. Like I said, I played against my brother a ton. I'm pretty sure I always chose... It was one of the... Japanese snowboarders. I looked his name up earlier. It was uh, Kimachi. The uh, the main reason I chose him because he was the fastest. So I figured if I bomb the hill and move as little as possible, I probably can beat my brother. And I I don't know. I I remember getting upset a lot. So that probably wasn't always true. <laughs> but a couple yeah. other. Oh, go ahead. You have you played this game? Yeah, absolutely. I really like 1080. Um, you know, it is nowadays they kind of don't make these anymore, which bums me out because I really like snowboarding games. Um, but you know, 1080 at this at this point 
it's far from the best snowboarding game that's put out. Like, later on, the SSX games started coming out and kind of really expanded on a lot of the ideas in snowboarding games and, and, and in my opinion, kind of went on to make some of the best stuff in the genre. Mm-hmm. But at this time, 1080 is where it's at. I remember there was a snowboard that looked like a penguin. You had to do yeah. some, some kind of uh, unlock for it. I don't remember exactly what it was. I, at some point, I either looked it up in one of those cheat code books mm-hmm. or like uh, in a Game Informer type magazine where they had an article about it. I'm sure I got it from something like that. And, and I figured out how to do it after doing the unlocks or whatever. And then I, I started using the penguin board. Yeah, you can't, you couldn't at the time, you know, people nowadays, you can just go look up whatever you want about a game. But at the time, those resources just weren't out there in the same way. You had to hope that a friend of yours figured it out. Like, oh, what's this uh, black shadowy type board? It kind of looks like it could be a penguin, but I'm not really sure. No idea how to unlock it. And then, yeah, hope hope it was unlocked somewhere else. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I... uh... This makes me think of the days where a lot of fake video game secrets would be out there, even on the internet. Um, I remember the one that I pursued the most was in original Super Smash Bros. on the Nintendo 64. Um, one of the rumored secret secrets that you can do, because there's four secret characters in that game, you can unlock, mm-hmm. um, what, Jigglypuff, um, Luigi, mm-hmm. uh, Captain Falcon, I want to say, is a secret, and... Mm-hmm. Um, Ness, I believe, are the four. Um, yeah, I think you nailed it. Uh, at the time, the rumor was that if you played through the single-player game, got up to a million points in that, you would unlock a Goku of Dragon mm. Ball fame. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, as a kid, I was not into Dragon Ball. Um, I knew who Goku was on like a superficial cultural osmosis level, but I don't know anything about him or anything like that. However, the idea of there's another character in this game that I can unlock, I'm going to go for it. Um, so I spent a lot of time trying to unlock Goku in that game, which is absolutely not something you can do. <laughs> so two things here. One, I also heard this rumor, and you and I did not go to school anywhere near each other. No, 100%. When, when that game was out initially. So that's kind of crazy. And the second thing I would add is the game that I pursued with the largest rumor at the time was unlocking Luigi in the original Super Mario 64. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one's definitely out there. Not and then the fun part is they later on when they remade Mario 64 on the DS, Luigi is in there as an unlockable character. Yes, that is true. Uh, a couple other things I now that we're kind of coming back from that little tangent, a couple other things I want to add about 1080. Sure. Because I, I think there are some significant people that worked on this game that contributed elsewhere that many people Ooh. probably don't realize. So 1080 was directed by Masamachi Abe and Mishuro Tanako, and it was programmed by Englishmen Giles Goddard and Colin Reed, and then it was developed and published by Nintendo and produced by Miyamoto. Mm -hmm. Now, Abe had previously directed Tekken 3 for Namco. Interesting. Goddard had previously programmed the Mario face in Super Mario 64 which was released you know, two years prior to much acclaim and huge success, while Reed had programmed Stunt Race FX. So okay. 
According to Miyamoto, the game itself came about because he said, I like skiing. I was thinking about making a skiing game after completing Wave Race 64. However, the current trend seems to be toward snowboarding. With snowboarding, it seems you can go in places that you can't with skis. For example, in between trees. And that was his quote on the game, and that's why they made it. So, pretty cool. Definitely a good game. One of my earliest memories for just trick-type games. And I'm sure it's the main reason that I ended up playing a ton of Tony Hawk skateboard on the computer. Like, so much. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Fantastic addition. And, uh sealed it for number four for me for for the games here so yeah what do you got for number four number four i'm bringing you a double header uh-oh breaking convention here um we're gonna i'm gonna bring out a game and its expansion which both happened to come out the same year which i did not realize at the time this is this is a little crazy for me i am talking about Blizzard Entertainment's StarCraft and its expansion, Brood War. Mm. StarCraft came out uh, at the end of March, and Brood War was partway through December. So, so real quick, spoiler for me, StarCraft is number seven on my list. Okay. So, All right. Definitely up there, but please proceed. Uh, so StarCraft is the best-selling RTS game ever made. Uh, it... So it's it's very very far from the first one. Um, you know, you had your um, Dune Two kind of created the series, the genre. Uh, Westwood's Dune Two uh, several years before that, and then 1995 you had Command and Conquer and Warcraft Two, and that's where the genre like really got popularized and really started catching on. But then Starcraft came out in '98 and kind of captured everyone's imagination and really took over. Um, Game did has done to date eleven million copies, which is crazy. That is a lot of copies. Um, there are still tournaments going on, yeah, for this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even StarCraft Two came out way, way later. Uh, Twenty eleven is when the first portion of that released, and despite that, um, the competitive scene for uh, Brood War, specifically the expansion of the game, has continued on through the release of that game and even to today. Yep. I think one of the key elements um, that StarCraft does is even more so than Warcraft, the Warcraft games, um, Blizzard's other games that came out before StarCraft, um, it has a lot more focus on narrative and uh, named characters than any RTS game had ever really done. And having story that plays out mid-mission as opposed to just cutscenes before and after missions uh i think really really made a difference in that single player campaign one narratively one of the things that is notable about this game is that it heavily steals from warhammer 40k <laughs> um much like warcraft stole from warhammer fantasy i think part of what made blizzard so successful around kind of just almost completely wholesale just taking ideas from from the warhammer setting is that Warhammer, you know, is, is a popular franchise for sure, and it is especially in its incarnation in the 90s, it's very, very British. Um, mm-hmm. And I think part of what made Blizzard so successful around this is they kind of stripped all that vibe out of it and heavily Americanized <laughs> it, so it really started appealing more directly towards, say, 
preteens and teens in America. I certainly know it did to me. And <laughs> I was not into Warhammer at the time. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, it's a. Uh, yeah, StarCraft is still excellent, excellent game. They they put out a remastered version of it, I want to say like five or six years ago, and just kind of sharpened up the visuals and everything. But even then, even if you go back and play the, just the original, original version, it still looks decent. You know, not great, but decent. It's It's absolutely playable. I think another critical element, and again, this is not the first RTS to do this, but it's one of the earlier ones, and I think the earliest heavily successful one to do or the earliest to do this successfully is starcraft has three different factions it's got the terrans who are kind of the humans um you've got the protoss which are kind of like a more alien futuristic e-race and then you've got the zerg which are kind of these mindless monster-y creatures um which one was your favorite or did that change over time uh, i'll get there in a minute because that, uh, that that changes if we're talking about starcraft or brood war Okay, fair. Uh, it's so it's got those three factions, and they play dramatically differently from each other. It's a completely oh, yeah. different strategy. You're doing completely different types of units and everything. The Terrans are kind of a middle of the road path, whereas the Protoss are more about um, higher strength units that are more expensive, so you can't have as many, but they're tougher. Whereas the Zerg is kind of the other end of the spectrum, where their units tend to be very, very cheap, and you can cr- create a lot of them very quickly. Um, but they're not as strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's part of what was so compelling is you have people who would really kind of click into one or another faction and go, oh man, I'm a Protoss player. This is this is what I really enjoy. My my friends and I at the time definitely had like, oh, I like playing this faction or or this faction and everything. And I think that 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 story kind of played out in a lot of friend groups and schools and stuff across the country. Absolutely. So uh, Brood War came out later in the year as an expansion to the game, adds um, adds a bunch more story missions. Uh, the base game, both the base game and Brood War had separate campaigns for each of the factions that you play through in a specific order and, and you're telling a specific story. It also added a bunch of new units that kind of critically shifted the gameplay styles um, and balance between the different factions. Um, and then Brood War is really aware that competitive scene starts kicking off um, that really kind of, you know, again, you know, the fighting game pro scene is, is forming around this time as well. But um, the brood war competitive scene is a huge part of what contributed to where esports are today. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. It's amazing seeing some of those early Zerg players. I mean, their oh, yeah. mouth, they just don't stop moving. And mm-hmm. I'm like, how are you able to see every single action that you're doing right now? I I can't fathom it. The amount of keyboard shortcuts they your, were utilizing. Your, your APM man. actions per minute. Oh my gosh, yeah. Mine is bad. <laughs> yeah. Mine I is was never bad. great at these games, to be clear, in a competitive sense. I never really got into the competitive scene as much because I was just never that good. I loved the single player stuff. Yeah. I just like playing against friends occasionally. Oh yeah, sure, sure. And, yeah, the single player. Yeah, I uh, in original StarCraft, I was um, more of a Protoss player. I like to really heavily fortify things with the photon cannons and everything. But mm-hmm. with the advent of them adding the Lurker uh, unit type to the Zerg in um, Brood, in War, Brood yeah. War, uh, Lurkers 
or a flying unit that had a ranged attack that was longer than anything else in the game, but could only attack ground units. So for people who like to fortify their bases and everything, you could just send a bunch of lurkers over to their base and blow things up, up from further away than the defenses could shoot back, which was amusing to me. <laughs> you know, I tried to play Zerg a lot. I do feel like they are probably the superior combat, but it's it, it's tough. I just I could never quite get the hang of it. it was I've tried Protoss uh, in the early versions a bunch mm-hmm. and and that was kind of where I excelled. I just found myself kind of balancing out in the Terran though most of the time. Just it felt like it was a good fit for my playstyle, which is pretty middle of the road anyway, so yeah, and that's where and that's where I think again one of the things that's so successful about StarCraft is they have these dramatically differently playing factions and for people who like RTS games there's kind of something for everyone. And it is fairly balanced. I I would say it's not perfect, of course. No no game is, but it's pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for the day, you know, the ages where, you know, nowadays with video games People games are supported long term and they put out balance patches and tweaks to things over time as people find problems where, you know, back then it's not that games never got patches. They did sometimes, but certainly nowhere near to the level that that games today do. Yeah. But yeah, Starcraft, that's and uh, and Brood War. That's my that's my number four. I did not include Brood War on mine because I did not realize that it came out in the same year. But. I didn't know before doing the research for this episode. I was like, holy cow, this came out the same year. Because I came to StarCraft a couple of years later after it came out. At the time, I didn't have a PC that could run it, but probably around like 2000, 2001 or so. That's when I really started getting into it. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't until the early 2000s for me as well. Unless I was at my uncle's house. He always had kind of the next level computer and always had the newer games. I remember when he first showed me Diablo 2. Man, that was a cool game. Sure. It's like, oh yeah, you should get a copy. Your mom will love that you're playing this. And I'm like, I don't know, 11 at the time. <laughs> Diablo 2 is 2000, I want to say. Yeah, that sounds right. A couple but, years after this. but Yeah, so I guess I would have been about 11. <laughs> we might hear it later on from me on a game that influenced Diablo. Uh, Diablo 2 anyway but uh, now why don't we move on to your number three number three this game developed by Insomniac Games and published by Sony Computer Entertainment released on September 9th 1998 for the PlayStation it is Spyro the Dragon hey duplicate alert what do you got Spyro is on my list it is my number nine so that's both the duplicates then right uh, to my knowledge, yes. All right, Spyro's great. Yeah, it's uh, I, I as far as like general conceptual games at the time, this was kind of like next level type stuff, right? It's the first game in the Spyro series. It mm-hmm. stars obviously a purple dragon named Spyro, and of course I've his of dragonfly friend Sparks, and uh, he's just kind of hanging out in the Dragon Kingdom and trying to defeat Nasty Nork. Uh, nasty, both Nasty and Nork spelled with a silent G on the front. Yes. Ganasty Ganork. I believe they make jokes about that in the game. Yes, they do. That was one of the things that I really enjoyed about the game. The dialogue in it was just kind of whimsical, but funny. 
at the sure, same time. Yeah. Like, it was just enjoyable. It was a fun game. And uh, let's see. So there are five dragon homeworlds, uh, trapping other dragons in crystals, uh, turning them into a horde of gems, army of minions, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's right up my alley, right? You got to collect things. You start breathing fire. You charge around levels, parkouring off of stuff, and of course, gliding around, defeating enemies. And I don't know, it's just kind of fun and and just simple. Like it's definitely not too complex of a game. There's a little bit of puzzling to it, but not much. Not not like there is in a lot of these other games. Certainly not in my number two pick. But yeah, I think. I think that I think one of the standouts that makes Spyro such a special thing is that ability that he has to glide. He can't mm-hmm. fall on fly, but it almost feels like you're breaking the game at times with the glide as you're like, okay, I can get up high in this area. And then if I glide, I can get to areas that it almost seems like I shouldn't be able to get to. Right. But you I know, and think that was part of their intention with definitely with the definitely. way they developed it. Right. They but want you one, to feel the, like you're taking advantage of it. Exactly. Yeah, that's one of the things I think is one of my favorite things about game design when they're able to make you feel like you're getting one over on the game, even though they've already accounted for it. But if they can make the player feel like they're getting you're getting one over on the game, that's always a great feeling in a game. It is. And that this game's got it a ton. And I mean, I, I've played the next two games as well. I. Ripto's Rage was number two. I thought that one was mm-hmm. just okay. I, I still enjoyed it. But the third one in, in the series, uh, Spyro Year of the Dragon, that was, I think, my favorite of the three. Really, really, really fun. So, interesting thing on my relationship to Spyro. I, I didn't have a PS1 as a kid, and I didn't have a friend that had a PS1 as a kid. Uh, so most of my experience very early on with Spyro is like the demo kiosks at like a Target or something. Oh yeah, where we go to Target, and my mom would would leave me at the at the electronic section, so like GameStop, yeah, something like that. KB um, Game or KB Toys is that what it was? KB Toys or uh, um, um, Babbage's, you know, you Babbage's. Got a variety of different e- EB um, Games was that what it was? I don't know. There's a uh, bunch of these something things. like that. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, the so early on, I didn't get to play more than like the first level of Spyro over and over again, you know, mm-hmm. at, at different places. But um, l- more recently, I want to say probably about four or five years ago, um, they put out a remastered version of the trilogy. Yeah, the trilogy. Um, like 2018, I think that was. Yeah, so I think it was probably like 2019 when I played through it. And that was my first time playing all the way through these games, otherwise playing just kind of like demos of them in the past. And let me tell you what, they still hold up. You know, obviously they're remastered, they've improved the visuals and everything. The games look absolutely fantastic, but the gameplay is still what it was. They're not changing mm-hmm. what the game is on a fundamental level, and they still hold up. They're still really good. I had a very good time with them. I did have a, a couple other notes here on the game uh, that maybe some people did not realize. Uh, Spiral the Dragon started development following the release of insomniac's debut game disruptor which sold mm-hmm. really poorly but yeah, was did not catch on generally it was praised by critics but yeah but it impressed universal interactive enough to encourage them to make a second game artist craig stitt suggested a game about a dragon and work began on the new game now they took inspiration from the film 
Dragonheart. I don't know if you've seen this movie. Okay. I really like it. Uh, spoilers, there's a guy who has half of a heart of a dragon, and the two of them are intertwined with lives. So the game started out very mature, and it was more of a dark and kind of realistic approach. But the overall direction shifted to something that was a little bit more lighthearted in tone because they wanted to appeal to a wider market of consumers in a younger audience, probably. So uh, the game was one of the first on the PlayStation to utilize shifting levels of detail among rendered objects, thanks to a new engine development that they had done by Alex Hastings. And that allowed the game's open ended nature to be really fully realized and so Stuart copeland the former drummer for the police he composed the game's music i don't know if you knew that i did and the title character was voice acted by carlos alazraki alongside additional voices done by clancy brown michael goff and jamie alcroft i love me some clancy brown there you go uh, later on, Spyro would go, I want to say like PS2 era Spyro, I think. Um, they got Elijah Wood in to voice Spyro. Yeah, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that game was very good. Mm. The series kind of went downhill at a certain point. It was really those first three PS1 games. They gave it to a different developer. Insomniac only did the first three, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the subsequent ones were not as good. But that's kind of how it goes. A couple other things about it. It was released by Sony as a general effort to appeal to a younger audience and compete with the N64. And as a result, Spyro uh, being their first considerable success, they went on to develop other games, including Ratchet and Clank series, which Mm -hmm. is also fantastic. Yeah, I love those games. And the first-person shooter Resistance. Let's see. The game... Established Spyro as a well-known platforming mascot alongside Crash Bandicoot. And so they kind of became the face of PlayStation a little bit. And the last thing that I'll add here, kind of related to the speedrunning community, because I know there's a super active speedrunning community along some of these older games. and, And I'll mention this for really my next three picks because there is an active community for each of them, Spyro, in general, has a super active community. And so the current any percent speedrun record is 37 minutes, 57 seconds, held That's by fast. somebody named uh, Daleman. And, and this record, I mean, there's, there's some cuts and some glitches and some weird manipulation, object manipulation that you get to do. But if you get a chance to watch the run on YouTube, it is really entertaining. I mean, you're just, you're like, oh, I remember that spot. Uh, oh, you could do that? Oh, what the heck? Like, Yeah, for wow. folks who don't know, any percent means that you can use any means necessary to get from the first part of the game, beginning of the game, to the ending. Frequently, that means using glitches and things like that, but um, it's not like a, uh, like a completionist 100% run where you're actually doing everything in the game. This so- is just get from the start to the end as fast as you can. Right, so that's where the next section comes in, the 120% speedrun, which includes all of the dragons, all of the gems. I, there's, it's basically everything, every collectible in the game, and, and then some. That's why it's 120% speedrun. That one timed out is 1 hour, 21 minutes, and 2 seconds, also held by Daoman, same guy. So that is incredibly fast. Yeah. I, I just 
I cannot even fathom completing this game in under an hour and a half. And yet this person is completing them completely in under an hour and a half. Crazy. Yeah, they uh those speedrunners are nuts. Yeah. I have no intention of trying to compete with that or even attempting any of these speedruns, but it's pretty fun to watch occasionally and sure. You know, when they feature them on like awesome games done quick, that whole charity stream it's pretty cool to watch, so yeah. Glad it was on your list as well. Fantastic game. And uh now we can move on to your number three. Uh, number three is uh, I'm going to go to a studio that you've mentioned before, studio and publisher. We're talking Namco here. Uh, Namco, this is, never heard of them. Yeah, this is uh, the only fighting game on my list. Uh, we're talking about Soul Calibur for both arcade, released for both arcade and the Sega Dreamcast. In Sega Dreamcast. Man, what a great console. Poor Sega Dreamcast just never really got its chance in the sun. Died died before its time. The last Sega console. Uh, but Too bad. Soul Calibur itself, absolutely fantastic fighting game. Uh, it's the follow-up to Soul Edge in Japan, or Soul Blade as it was named in the States. Soul Calibur is the fourth highest rated video game of all time on Metacritic. Wow. It is, it's kind of the sister series to Tekken, which is the first fighting game series that Namco did um, on the PlayStation, uh, and uh, is a 3D fighter like Tekken, but with some critical, critical differences. Um, Soul Calibur is a weapon fighter versus um, Tekken, and honestly, more often than not, most other fighting games are kind of more focused on like martial arts, people who are just hitting you with their fists Mm -hmm. in different ways as opposed to that. And I think. The weapon fighter aspect of it is one of several elements that makes Soul Calibur a very approachable game for people who aren't fighting game people, people who don't know kind of the hidden subset of rules that make fighting games work. It's a very easy pick up and play game. And so when you're playing like a Street Fighter or something, if you're not a fighting game person, you know, then you might like the different character designs. But in terms of what they do, it's not immediately apparent versus in a Soul Calibur. You can look at it and we'll play it and be like, okay, that guy's got a sword. I want to play as the guy with the giant sword. I have mm-hmm. an idea of what he's going to do because he has a giant sword that's the size of his body. <laughs> or this guy's got nunchucks. Or, you know, Maxie's got the nunchucks and, and so on and so forth. So uh, that that's one element of why I think it's more approachable. Uh, another thing, and this is this is a very intentional design choice on Namco's part. They wanted to make this a more approachable game. Um, and so it's a lot more lenient in terms of input timings as opposed to Tekken or other um, fighting games are a lot more demanding as to, okay, you need to really do, execute, do your inputs for these moves, very specific timing or they aren't going to work. Soul Calibur kind of loosens it up a bit and just makes it a lot easier for people who don't know what they're doing to get in and have a good time. The it's a For that reason, the way I've always kind of viewed the series is it's it's a great party game um you can take it seriously if you want to you can try to get into like the the hardcore scene in of these games they've made a ton of them at this point i want to say tekken 6 came out like four years ago or something like that or not tekken 6 so caliber 6 uh came out like four years ago <laughs> but 
it's just it's easy to have some friends over, turn on Soul Calibur, and just play different characters and goof off and and have a good time fighting each other. And and even if you don't know how to play fighting games very well, just a little bit in terms of the flavor of Soul Calibur. Um, it's a fighting game that's set in the late 1500s, so they're kind of they kind of go for more of like a historical themed roster um, with different characters from different parts of the world wearing the types of outfits and things that would exist at that time, which is kind of a unique flavor. You don't really see that sort of thing a lot in fighting games. Uh, Last real thing I have to mention here, um, most 3D fighters up to this point kind of had four directions of movement. Um, You can move towards the opponent or away from the opponent like a 2D fighting game, but also you could move kind of up or down to circle around them. Soul Calibur has what's called eight way. They called eight called it eight way run at the time, and so you can kind of move on those diagonals as well. And it made the game feel a little bit more fluid as a result. So I've definitely seen this game played, but I I cannot think of an example of a time that I actually played this game. I'll have to I'll have to make you play it next time we hang out. I heard that's pretty soon. Actually, it is. It's true. I'm um, gonna see you in person in a couple days here. Um, but, uh, no, it's, it's a ton of fun. You got, you got like your Mitsurugi, who's like a samurai dude. You got Keelik, he's got a big staff. You got all kinds of fun characters. Yeah, if we want, if we wanted to set it up, I definitely would play it. Yeah, I'll have to figure out a way to make that happen. Good, do it. Well, one other thing I wanted to mention that this game has that a lot of other games at the time didn't is the concept of the ring out, which is it's instead of taking down your character, the other opponent's health bar all the way, you can just knock them off the edge of the platform, then you win too. And let me tell you what, I've been infuriated at that a lot of times. Like, mm-hmm. oh no, you knocked me off. I was winning, and then you just knocked me off. Okay, so you that jerk. actually sparked a specific memory. I may have played this in an arcade capacity. Okay. At the bowling alley years ago. I don't know that it was the first Soul Calibur, but that that is hitting a specific chord. So I'm wondering, yeah, maybe I have played this. I, I, I need to go back and look. Maybe. Hmm. Maybe so. Good addition. It's a great game. Seems okay. I don't know. It's not on my list. Can't be that great. <laughs> All right, well, that's my number three. What you got for number two? Number two. My number two is Banjo-Kazooie. Ooh. June honorable 29th. mention for me. Okay, June 29th, 1998, for the N64, developed by Rare, and has arguably some of the best soundtracks in a Nintendo 64 game. That's what it's Grant Kirkhope is Banjo, that- I want to say. That is Grant Kirkhope, yes, is the composer, yes. Good soundtrack. Same uh, person that also did, he contributed to GoldenEye, uh, Mm -hmm. Donkey Kong 64, Perfect Dark, as well as, you know, a few others. He also voices some characters in Banjo-Kazooie. Well, (laughs) the character voices in that game are uh, unique, let's say. Okay, so it's not really voicing, it's more like just making specific sounds that Blah blah blah, blah 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 yeah exactly yeah they're, they're good they're good voices they have good characterization to them they're just Ginger! not saying words 
They're not saying words, you know. And they say Jinjo. They say their own name. And Grant mm. does voice the Jinjo. Okay. Anyway, so for those unfamiliar with this game, you have a bear, Banjo, and a bird, a female bird companion, Red Bird, named Kazooie. Bear and bird. And the two of them team up to take down Grunty, or Gruntilda, the witch. And it's really all because Banjo's sister, Tootie, was kidnapped by Grunty. Mm-hmm. Because Grunty wanted to steal Tootie's beauty for herself. And so they've got to save her. So on that note, uh, an early memory I have of this game Mm-hmm. Is I did not own this game as a kid. I played it years later. Um, but I remember being in a Best Buy, probably mm. close to when this game came out. So I would have been like eight years old. And they had like one of those displays of a bunch of TVs that combined to make a big TV. Mm-hmm. And they had like this game, like a like, like not maybe like a trailer or something. I don't know for this game. Um, or just like a, a kind of a gameplay demo th- video on a loop. Um, and it included what happens when you die in that game and you get a little cutscene of um of Gruntilda like doing a magic thing to your sister and um and that scared me as a kid. I oh. see that video <laughs> that cutscene scared me as a child and I was like, Oh, this is scary, I don't like it. Oh man. Witches yeah. are bad and evil, according to my parents. Well, obviously. So, I guess, spoilers then, right? At the mm-hmm. final battle, Grunty is knocked off of her castle-like lair and is trapped beneath a boulder. So, that's... Never it. to be seen again. That Well, yeah. Sort of. Until the sequel. I was gonna say, until Banjo-Tooie. So, yeah, platforming challenge game has action adventure elements it has puzzles just a a variety of different literal jigsaw puzzles i mean part of the game centers around collecting jigsaw puzzle pieces you like your collectathons i'm hearing i do it is it is a theme amongst games that i've enjoyed and i think we've even discussed that in the past And uh, it makes me sad because one of the games that I think is arguably one of the best at this is not on my list and is in my honorable mention because I have not played it. Interesting. We'll get back to that. The uh, other things I wanted to mention here, Banjo was originally uh, debuted as a playable character in 1997 for the game Diddy Kong Racing. Yeah, Diddy Kong Racing. Also a fantastic game. Very good. And yeah, that's uh, I have that game. I've played that game a ton. And, I, you know, maybe we need to bust out the N64 this weekend. Mm, something to think about. So a couple other things I'm going to add here because there's um, some specific ties to the game for me. Uh, As I was looking through my list of all the different games that I could possibly include on this, when I read the name Banjo-Kazooie, it immediately sparks the music from this in in my brain. And it's like I'm listening to it right now even. It's just a very, very specific attributed memory that anytime it gets mentioned, I can hear it. And then I would even go so far as to say 
there have been times where I listen only to the soundtrack from Banjo Kazooie and Banjo Tooie, and and I just put them on repeat as I'm doing something else, working or playing another game. It's just this music has stuck with me for years. I really, really like it. It's a good soundtrack. So that's the first thing I'll add. The next thing I'll add, and it's a little bit more specific to the gameplay itself, about five, six years ago, I purchased a Nintendo 64 because the previous one that I had uh, went missing. Uh, long story there, but either way, I stole it. I knew it. I knew it the whole time. So anyway, I have one now and I purchased several games. And the main focus here was I wanted to introduce my my children at the time to the Nintendo 64. They had never really played it. They'd heard of a couple games, but they'd never really played it. And so I bought a lot of the key games. But Banjo-Kazooie and Banjo-Tooie I purchased pretty much for myself. And that was the first game that I played as soon as I was able to have a turn on the Nintendo 64. And man, playing through this game just brings back so many memories. It is just a ton of fun. And not incredibly difficult by any means, but just a just a good time. Great soundtrack, and man, I definitely will be playing it again sometime. Yeah, like I said, I came to it a lot later, so I don't have like those like childhood childhood memories. I probably played it when I was like seventeen or eighteen. Still a great game, you know. Had a very good time with it. Never played through the sequel though, Banjo Tooie. Never got to that. So there's a couple other things that I'll add here that are less related to me specifically. The ending sequence in Banjo-Kazooie, should the player collect all 100 jiggies, or jigsaw pieces, in the game, it indicated that two colored eggs in the game would be put to use in this sequel, Banjo-Tooie. There was also an inaccessible ice key shown in the same sequence, which kind of led gamers to figure out a way to get it. And while only two eggs were shown in the sequence, some hackers, Alan Ice Mario Pierce and Mitchell Subdrag Kleiman, of the Rare Witch Project, which is a fantastic name for this. <laughs> Rare being the developer. Of course, yes. The Rare Witch Project fan site. They discovered in-game cheat codes to unlock a total of six different eggs and the ice key. And other ways of getting the six eggs and key were previously discovered via the use of a cheat cartridge. And so once acquired, these items would be viewable by all three game files and would remain even after erasing the files. Interesting. Yeah, so it gave you a couple of very specific abilities in game and unlocks and, I don't know, just kind of fun little Easter eggs, if you will. A couple other indication, or excuse me, um, some additional notes here for Banjo-Kazooie. In early 2015, a group of former Rare employees who worked on Banjo-Kazooie announced that they had formed a new studio called Platonic Games, and they planned a spiritual successor to Banjo-Kazooie called Yuka, Y-O-O-K-A, dash Laylee, L-A-Y-L-E-E, ukulele. I've played it, and it's sequel. So the 
developer initially sought funding for the game via Kickstarter, and they wanted 175,000 pounds, and it was reached within 38 minutes of having been launched. Mm-hmm. And they eventually raised over 2 million pounds at the, at the conclusion of the campaign. So the game was released for, you know, Windows, Mac OS, Linux, PS4, Xbox One, Switch. And uh, it, it kind of had mixed reviews. Uh, you've played yeah. it. I have not played it. What do you, do you think of the game? I, I would say it's just OK. It's definitely trying to evoke the Banjo-Kazooie style of game. And uh, I think it does so in a way that. People don't make collectathons anymore for a reason is because there were a million of them in the 90s. And I feel like a lot of people just kind of got burned out on them. Sure. So they brought they brought those ideas forward into um, into the 2010s and didn't I feel like they just kind of didn't do a lot with it. Um, I think it's a decent enough game, but it doesn't really do anything new. Okay. The sequel, however, um, they take it instead of it being more of like a Banjo Kazooie, they turn it into more of a Donkey Kong country. And that game, I think it's much, much better. It's, it's a 2d side scroller collectathon rather than the 3d Banjo Kazooie style. And that, that Mm. is a great game. Are are they available on steam? Do you know, where did you play them? Oh yeah, definitely. I played them on steam. Okay. So I will have to check into that. The last note that I'll put here for Banjo Kazooie is the speed runs. Of course, Mm-hmm. The any percent speed run for this puts the, the game at just under one hour. Wow. Which is just kind of ridiculous. And the hundred percent speed run is just under two. And again, same person has both these records, and it is somebody by the name Azmi. A-Z-M-I. So pretty impressive for the speedrunning community on that one. Also very fun to watch. I would say. Banjo Tooie is more exciting to watch because of the increased complexity and some of the unique worlds that really are are coming out in that one. I think in a lot of ways it's a more difficult game, even though it's pretty similar. So seeing the speed runs on that one are even more impressive. But yeah, just uh, Banjo Kazooie. Easily a solid number two here. As soon as I read it, I knew it was going to be in my top five. I started as number one until I realized that another game had been released in this year. So, Yeah, and honestly, for me, Banjo-Kazooie is probably my number 11 or very, very close to it. I mean, that's practically 10, so it practically needs to be number one on the list overall. But, you know, that's a different story. So, yeah, Banjo-Kazooie, if you haven't played it, highly recommend. It's very good. What's your number ten? Uh, number two, not number ten. Number two. Number ten comes later, Scott. You know. Yes. Ah. Uh, my number two. I'm going back to the PC this time, and I would say once we start getting up here, these are the real heavy hitters. These are some of like the real, like some of the most important games ever made territory, mm. in my opinion. Mm. Uh, this is the first video game from the uh, game studio Valve. And we're talking about the first Half-Life game. Sure, sure. Have never played it. It's a little bit hard to go back to just because 1998 3D graphics in general look pretty bad nowadays. And this game's no exception. However, it gameplay-wise extremely holds up. 
I played this many years after the fact because I didn't have a PC anywhere near of capable of handling something like this in 1998. And also my parents would not have allowed me to play this game in 1998. Uh, the first person shooter uh, uh, that, that is this uh, violent, let's say. But would you say the graphics of this game have a half-life? Mm, most things do. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, this game's incredibly important for storytelling in video games overall. One of the most important things that it does is it's one of the first shooters to ever tell its story through, and honestly, games as well, that's telling a story through gameplay moments versus cutscenes. So the game basically never takes control away from you unless you're like in a loading screen. Um, rather, if a story thing's going to happen, instead of it being, okay, now the game's going to move to a cutscene, you're going to watch this video and then go back to your character, you are in control of your character the whole time, and characters in the world are talking to you, and you can walk around them, and they'll turn and look at you and everything. Um, and so, like, the whole opening level of that game isn't you fighting anything or anything like that. It is you as a character, Gordon Freeman, who works at this, um, your scientist who works at this top secret research facility called Black Mesa. And it is just kind of you going to work. It's you showing up at Black Mesa and then riding this tram. It's this whole big, crazy um, facility. And you're riding this tram monorail through the facility, seeing different things play out as you're going through the building and everything before ultimately arriving at your destination, getting in your protective suit to do this experiment. And then it all goes horribly awry and a portal to an alien dimension nodes shows up and all kinds of aliens start coming through. And then it's you kind of fighting your way through to to try and try so and survive. Does the game soft lock you in any way? Like if you're having a conversation with someone, does it prevent you from moving out of a room or moving forward? Yeah, or? typically that's what it's doing is it's it's making it so, hey, you can't just skip this because we're giving you critical information here. I think sometimes right. it'll let you skip. It's been a while since I played this, but um Sometimes it'll give you the opportunity to kind of move move past it if it's less critical stuff. But usually it's like, okay, like one of the early scenes is like, oh, I'm talking to the security guard and he's talking to you about what's going on and everything before he opens the door for you, for example. Okay. But nowadays, this is like everywhere in video games, right? This is a ton, tons of different, you know, cutscenes and stuff still exist. They have their place, but I would say more often story elements are happening around you characters are talking to you as you're playing the game as opposed to now we're going to move to a cutscene, right mm -hmm. and this is kind of you know it's certainly again like with many of these things this is not the first game ever to do this but it's the first game to it's to do it super successfully i would say it's certainly the first uh shoot first person shooter to do it Interest, other interesting things here that make Half-Life notable, I think, um, incorporates some interesting horror elements, um, probably most crucially the head crab as a type of alien that you're interacting with. These are very, very clearly directly inspired by the facehuggers from Alien. So mm -hmm. These are kind of um, human head sized crab like creatures that jump on human heads and then um, take control of you and turn you into a zombie. So that's a lot of the enemies that you're fighting are different humans that worked at Black Mesa, the Black Mesa facility that have been taken over by these head crabs. Um, and that includes like security that have guns or just regular scientists that are just trying to hit you or things like that. So 
um it's it's a spooky game there's definitely it's not like i wouldn't say it's a full-on horror game by any definition but like it's like it's immersive and it's tense probably a little bit harder to get scared by it nowadays because the graphics are pretty outdated but even so if you are interested in playing this game and you want to see a more up-to-date version of it a fan project called black mesa eventually got kind of uh taken in by valve and um, is available to buy on Steam now. That is basically, here's just the whole game of Half-Life 1 redone to have much more modern graphics. And there have been playable versions of that around for like 10 years or something crazy. But just a few years ago, it was completed. Now you can play that entire thing start to finish. Um, cool. With better graphics. So that's pretty neat. It's pretty well done. I guess I I never really... Never really heard about these games until probably like years later, and at that point, it's like, well, this doesn't look that great. I'm not going to play it. Sure, sure. <laughs> the uh, I think one of the other critical things here that makes Half Life feel special is certainly at the time, and even still to today, first person shooters tend to be power fantasies. If you think about like Doom, hmm, which came yeah. out prior to this game. Doom is about getting these big giant crazy guns and just shredding your way through thousands of demons and all this stuff. And a lot of other first person shooters are kind of a similar thing. Half-Life's about more, a lot more just kind of like you're just this dude who just a scientist guy who's thrown into this bad situation. You're kind of just limping your way along, trying to survive your way through this and ultimately taking actions that are going to like save the day, you know, but, but you're not like the unkillable, unstoppable hero or anything. You're just kind of a guy who's just trying to stay alive kind of lends itself to that more um story focused experience than than other shooters were doing at the time. Right. I know there's been so much critical acclaim about these these games and you know, shame on me, but ah, there's only a couple of first person shooters I've ever really gotten into and unfortunately this was not one of them. I'd argue this is one of the best ones ever made. Last real detail I have to talk about Half-Life is um Again, this is very far from the first game or even the first shooter to have a big modding scene, but it's one of the earlier 3D polygonal games to develop an active modding community and had a very active modding community on on the PC. Just tons of different, um, you, you know, additional levels and things that people made or full conversions of the game that just turned it into this, uh, it's a completely separate thing using the game engine. Um, there's just where it was a ton of different stuff out there, and I imagine you can still play a lot of it. But yeah, great, 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 great video game. One of the all-time best, in my opinion. Yeah, good choice. I, I definitely get why it's your number two. And we'll move on to, finally, Scott, your number one. I have, I feel like, a pretty strong guess as to what I think this is. My number one. It's a little game called One-on-One Government. No, I'm just kidding. It's... <laughs> I didn't even know that was a game. I remember reading it in the list, like the first one. And I'm thinking, what the heck is this? Uh, not something I've ever heard of or played, but... Yeah, same, honestly. Not one-on-one Government. Wow, awesome. Anyway, no, uh, my number one is... Yeah, you probably can guess it in the same way that I can guess your number one, I think. Uh, it is Pokemon. Pokemon Yellow. Yellow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was released on September 12th, 1998. 
coincidentally, my birthday was a little over a week oh, later, wow. and I believe I received it for my birthday that year. So definitely, definitely a game that has been around since as early as can be for me. Now, I did not have a Game Boy Color. I had a Game Boy Pocket, but I still played this game quite a bit. My brother had a Game Boy Color later on, and I'm pretty sure I borrowed it and played it on that, as well as one of those Game Boy Advances. And sure. yeah, definitely adds a little bit of flavor to it, having some color to the game. But I still have uh, my, my Pocket, so. Duplicate alert. This is number six on my list. Aha. Uh-huh. Interesting. You can't, I can't, like, can't not put it on the list. Like, I'm not the biggest Pokemon fan in the world, but, like, I even, I, I enjoyed the first few gens of Pokemon quite a bit. Again, not right at this time when they were coming out, but later on. Um, and Yellow is the version that I played through of um, the red, blue, yellow generation, Gen 1. Yeah, so I I had all three. I think I still have all three of those games. Red was the first one that I had. And I remember when I first got the game and I was given the option of my Pokemon, I was a little disappointed that I couldn't choose Pikachu just because I sure, had, that's what, I had yeah, watched the, the game. The anime and everything. Yeah, I, I you know. I mean, if anyone else has played Red and Blue, you notice you you don't get Pikachu as a starter. Well, you know, in this one, obviously, you can truly live your best Ash life with the release of Pokemon Yellow. Yeah, and I believe the the official title of this video game is Pokemon Yellow colon Special Pikachu Edition. That is correct, yeah. Just frequently referred to as Yellow or Yellow version. Right. But yes, it is Special Pikachu Edition. And, you know, this game in itself does not add a ton of new features as far as from red and blue before going to gold and silver. Mm -hmm. But it is still unique enough and sold well enough that it was a huge commercial success. And fundamentally, it's the same game, right? Much like red and blue are basically the same game the game freak has had a decades-long scam of selling people the same game over and over again um allegedly so the but some of the unique things about it just made it more akin to the anime itself Uh, some some of the other starters like you could get all three of the other starters charmander bulbasaur and squirtle in, in various ways throughout the game you just had to talk to certain people and complete things that just weren't possible in red and blue. Mm-hmm. So, some of the gym leaders changed a little bit in the Pokemon that they fought with. I think most notably Lieutenant Surge, the third gym leader, I believe this time, instead of having a few Pokemon, I think he only had a Raichu, which was just like the anime, which is, you know, good for me because Raichu's my favorite. But, you know, Pikachu won't, choice. won't let you Old evolve choice. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What can I say? I'm a... just want to be different. Why, why, be can you do, why can you say that when Blastoise exists? Well, you know. Look at him. He's a big turtle guy. He's got shoulder cannons. 
yeah, okay. I mean, electric beats water, but that's a different story. Um, let's see. Uh, what was I going to mention? So the below-mentioned inclusion of Pikachu is the only available Pokemon to start with. Pikachu is oh he's given both a voice and a personality mm-hmm. and it's a little bit unique because none of the other Pokemon have that obviously it follows you around in the overworld and you can check his mood and you know depending on what you've been doing he can grow to love or hate you based on your actions don't be abusive towards your Pikachu come on sure well yeah don't let him faint for example if you do that frequently, he's he's not going to be too happy about it. But of course, if he levels up, he is happy. Yeah, and this is this is kind of the first game that they did to that introduce these kind of like Pokemon mood. Here's the idea of a Pokemon as a being with feelings versus just the, the fighter you're using in battle, you know, and later Pokemon games went on to really heavily use a lot of those ideas. Yeah, um, they, this is the first place that that exists. That feature was used again in uh, Heart Gold and Soul Silver, which mm-hmm. were the remakes of Pokemon Gold and Silver, as well as Let's Go Pikachu and Let's Go Eevee, which were the remakes of Pokemon Yellow. Let's Go Eevee Switch. being the alternate. Yep. Having never played any of those games, I can neither confirm nor deny that, but I can tell you in Yellow, it definitely comes up a lot where you do something and Pikachu's like, I hate you. Or, oh, that was great. I love you. And you're like, wow, feels good. I'm actually raising something and there's feedback. It's kind of nice. Tamagotchi. Yeah, don't get me started on that. Does that count as a 1998 video game? Probably not. Does this come out in 98? No, I don't think so. I think it was earlier than that. But do they count as a video game? Yeah, I I, I think probably. 1996. They had 1996 coming up again. I'm just saying. There you go. There you go. I had a Tamagotchi of a little dinosaur. Yeah, I think I had the same one. What color was that Tamagotchi? Red. Hmm. Why do I think mine was green? Anyway. Entirely uh, possible I had multiple colors of it. Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to... I might still have that as well. So, uh, one other thing in the Pokemon Yellow, there's a feature of a surfing Pikachu minigame which is where that was born. Mm-hmm. In order to play it, you have to have a Pikachu who can learn Surf, which is a water-based attack and therefore not generally learnable by Pikachu. So at the time, you could only accomplish this by either winning a contest to get a Surfing Pikachu. Uh, however, if players used Pikachu from Yellow in Pokemon Stadium, which, for those of you who have played Pokemon Stadium on the Nintendo 64, there was a cartridge uh, adapter that you plugged into the back of the 64 and then you could put your Game Boy cartridges into that adapter and it would take some of the data from that and put it into the game so for Pokemon Stadium if you had a Pikachu from yellow in Pokemon Stadium and then you beat a certain mode under some very specific circumstances you were awarded the move surf so you could use it in battle and out of battle and in the mini game as well. So, yeah, gotcha. Uh, Pokemon Yellow also notably had slightly improved graphics and 
I don't know if you ever had one of these, a Game Boy printer. No, I never it, did. I didn't either. I, did, I didn't have a, I didn't, I never owned my own Game Boy or Game Boy Color. No. Well, that's unfortunate. My first one was an advance. Hmm. Well, on the Game Boy printer, you could print Pokedex entries onto stickers. I definitely have seen it. I think when I was part of the Pokemon League, before the league really started on any given Saturday, there were people just kind of hanging out talking about Pokemon, and more often than not, just had their Game Boys with them and were playing. Sure. I remember when batteries used to be such an issue. I just carry extras with me all the time. Especially in that original Game Boy. Oh, yeah. A few other things on Pokemon Yellow. It has been obviously well received by critics. It has an aggregate score of 85% from gag- game rankings based on 16 reviews, making it the fifth highest rated Game Boy game of all time. Pokemon That's Yellow. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. It received two nominations for Game of the Year and Console Game of the Year during the third annual AIAS Interactive Achievement Awards. Uh, which is now known as the Dice Awards. In Japan, the game sold 1.549 million units in 1998, making it the third best-selling video game of 1998 in Japan, and it was only beaten by two games. Care to guess at which two games? Uh, You probably won't guess it, I'll just tell you. Resident Evil 2. Yeah, I believe that. And Dragon Warrior Monsters. Never heard of that game. Oh yeah, Dragon Dragon Warrior, known Dragon Warrior in the states early on. Uh, Dragon Quest, as it's known now in the original name in Japan. Hmm. I'm just I'm not familiar with Dragon Warrior Monsters though, because I have. Heard yeah, it's of kind Dragon of a Pokemon esque spinoff. Okay, fair enough. You're training and fighting monsters and stuff. Well, Yellow was the third best-selling video game in North America in 1999. And the other four top spots were also occupied by other Pokemon titles at the time. So Pokemon really, Fever had gripped the nation. Really started taking off, yeah. I mean, the demand for Yellow resulted in Target to issue an apology for not being able to meet the unprecedented demand. And a survey connected by CNET also found that None of the stores it contacted had yellow in stock. And a spokesperson, uh, spokesperson for Funko Land, you remember Funko Land? Oh, yeah. Attributed a drop in sales to shortages of both the Game Boy Color and Pokemon Yellow. So huge effects. And you're right, it was Pokemon Fever. And it has really stood the test of time. I mean, people are still playing these games and streaming these games especially the speedrunners, but it's uh Pokemon itself. I mean, they're still releasing new versions. We've got Pokemon Violet and Scarlet either coming out shortly or have just been released. So it's, it's just, they continue to produce these games and enthrall new younger generations into this fan base. I mean, my kids have played it and it's just, it's kind of amazing how well it stood the test of time. Yeah, Pokemon is held up. People love those games. Kid, and it's still getting kids in. That's the critical thing. Is mm-hmm. that's why it's held up as long as it has. I think is kids, new kids continue to go. Hey, this Pokemon thing seems pretty cool. Yeah, as long as the younger generation likes it, it'll continue to exist. Yep. So 
I will add the speed running here, the any percent glitchless speed run, which requires you not to perform any of the glitches that are known for the game, of which there are several. The English speed run is 1 hour 53 minutes and 11 seconds, so just under 2 hours to complete the entire game, and it's by somebody named Poka Guy. But the any percent with some very significant glitches is measured down to the millisecond. Oh, gee. The current record is 1 minute, 18 seconds, and 694 milliseconds. Also by dismantled the guy. Yeah, it, I mean, I've seen how this is done, because you can watch any video on YouTube and see red, blue, yellow, any of these with the massive glitches. They start the game, they immediately go into menus and start moving things around and manipulating things, and once they start putting pointers to objects at other things and engage in battle, they start moving markers around, and the software thinks that the game is moving you to a different location. And so once you've figured out how to manipulate that correctly, you can basically go anywhere. And so one of the places you can go is just to the 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 room after you've defeated the final four in Gary. So it just tri- teleports you there and it just starts playing the credits and the game is over, which is just kind of ridiculous how quickly that happens. You don't even need to play the game. You beat you, it already. You really don't. But it's just kind of cool seeing the manipulation on that. So I yeah, guess stuff gets pretty wild. My last comments for this, and, and the reason it's number one on my list overall, as a kid who grew up watching Pokemon and playing the card game and playing the Game Boy games, when you finally get yellow and you can really live that dream of kind of emulating Ash and, and following his journey and starting with Pikachu and getting all of the other starters and then kind of fighting in the same manners as what he does in in the show it just immerses you so much and and it was that immersion combined with just my love of the franchise up to that point that this was a no-brainer pick number one obviously you knew that i was going to pick this as number one and of course it's pokemon yeah it, i mean it's it was an easy pick and it was going to be either pokemon or runescape and there was no runescape in 1998 so no there was not no, there was not. Those aren't the only games I've played, but I, I like how you've reduced me to those two games. <laughs> it's basically your whole identity. Oh, okay, yeah, that's that makes sense. No, anyway, we can move on to your number one, <laughs> which I know what it is. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, you sure do. I bet. Uh, yeah, yep. we'll get right to it. Go for it. Nintendo hmm. made in 1998 one of the most important video games ever made, the highest rated video game ever rated on metacritic the template what became the template for all third person action games for many many years i am of course talking about the legend of zelda the ocarina of time shocking yeah are you sure it's not 1000 schlachten das felder herren packet für age of empires uh nope oh, okay. it is uh it is not that that was a runner-up yeah that makes whatever sense. that is yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> This is uh, yeah, uh, Nintendo 64, uh, the first Zelda game released on the console. That like I'm not joking when I say this is really one of the most important games ever made, regardless of whether you like it or not. It seems like most people do like it. 
but just incredibly influential on even today still how games are being made and handled. If you ever played a game where um like uh Darks the more recent like Dark Souls games in that vein and everything like that where a, a third person game where you're locking on to an enemy and kind of staying focused on them that comes from here. Z targeting uh, is what they called it in this game. Um and that's how they decided to handle before we had the advent of dual analog sticks where you could have one stick move the character and one stick move the move the camera. They hadn't really figured that out yet and the Nintendo 64 just had the one analog stick. So the their best way they figure okay, how do we handle the camera in this 3D scenario is you just lock onto the enemy and the camera stays focused on them. Uh so that went a huge distance towards making this kind of game playable in a 3D environment versus kind of more of a 2D thing that we had seen on previous um, previous consoles. Uh, one of the interesting stories behind some of the Z-targeting stuff is uh, when they originally made this game, the targeting thing was originally just going to kind of be this um, just kind of game mechanic marker, put an arrow over the guy's head or whatever. And then <clears throat> over time, they thought, okay, well, what if we turn this into a narrative element? And if you play the game, the finished game, you'll see, you see that you have a fairy named Navi. She is the marker that goes over the enemy when you're, when you're locking on to them. Uh, so that's, that mechanic led to the creation of her as a character. Uh, and hmm. in fact, is why she's named not Navi is because it's a navigational Navigation. marker. Uh, hmm. So, yeah. So Navi becoming a character ultimately led to another game mechanic that um, Ocarina of Time is kind of one of the first ones to do, which is the concept of like a narrative tutorial. Um, tutorials in video games have been around for a long time, of course. You know, hit hit the B button to swing the sword, that sort of thing. Uh, but what? What Ocarina of Time does is it introduces Navi as a character who is telling you how to do things in the game, as opposed to just like a disembodied force that goes like, okay, well, here's the, you know, just text box pops up, hit button to swing sword. Now you have a character telling you here is how you do things. And that, that has gone on to be kind of, I would say, for a long time, how tutorials were done more frequently as kind of having that narrative aspect to them. Mm -hmm. When we look at the structure of Ocarina of Time, um, what it really is doing is it's taking the previous Zelda game, um, well, sort of the previous, there was the, there was the Link's Awakening on the, on the Game Boy, uh, on the Game Boy in between these two, but um, you had the last main console video game of Link to the Past, the previous Zelda game, Ocarina of Time takes that the structure of that game of, hey, we've got these, similar to the original, we've got these different dungeons that you're going into, but kind of there's, here's the three first initial dungeons you go through, then we're going to have um, a major narrative twist that shifts the nature of the world, and now here's another block of, uh, like, here's eight more dungeons to go through, or six more dungeons, or however, whichever game uh, does which. Uh, the way that Ocarina of Time handles this is your hand, you have to, as Link, the hero, you're going and collecting these spiritual stones so you can gain access to the Master Sword so you can stop Ganon. However, when, once you do that, then you kind of um, you unseal the, uh, 
what the Master Sword was guarding, which is access to the Triforce, which um, was his goal all along. So he goes and he gains the Triforce of Power and ends up taking over Hyrule. What happens then is your character, Link, is kind of locked away in time for seven years. And then you emerge as an adult, as you're a child previously, and then you are in a kind of a future, not really apocalyptic per se, but heavily oppressed version of the Kingdom of Hyrule. Um, and then you're, you're traveling back and forth in time to collect items, be, defeat these dungeons and everything, and um, gain the power you need to, uh, to save the kingdom and, and defeat Ganondorf. So let me ask you, if I had to go back and play one of the Legend of Zelda games, would you recommend Ocarina of Time to be that game? Well, Ocarina is not my favorite. Um, my favorite, I think, is still Link to the Past. Link to the Past. Just I consider it to be a, a perfect video game. Um, uh, Ocarina of Time is a great one, though. Um, the 3DS remake is actually probably the best version of this game that's out there right now. They they kind of redid the visuals and stuff, but the original still holds up, you know. Um, it's a really great game. Um, very creative dungeons. It's one of the first 3D games to kind of do an open-world environment. Um, it's pretty small by today's standards, but for the time, you, you leave the first kind of major area of Kokiri Forest and go out into the Hyrule Field, and it just felt massive, sprawling. I could go anywhere in the world, wherever I want, and this is crazy. Um, this is a game I did play, um, if not the year it came out, probably the next year, and just fell You were allowed? Yeah, well... Eh. Uh, there are elements, there's kind of, Zelda has these zombie-like creatures called Redeads that um, my mom saw and was not a fan, and so there was a time period where I was not allowed to play, but ultimately I ended up playing through it. Um, <laughs> like I said before, I was a sheltered child. Um, but yeah, it's, um, that, that open world was pretty mind-blowing at the time. A couple of other notes I want to add here. Um, this is the first Zelda game. Previous Zelda games had uh, Ganon as your kind of main enemy, evil force, final boss that you're fighting against. And this game pivots that a little bit by having Ganondorf, instead of it just being this um, big monster Ganon who is trying to take over Hyrule and get the Triforce, instead you have Ganondorf who is a man and is able to have a little bit more agency as a character with the enhanced focus on storytelling that this game brought eventually at the end he like turns into ganon and that's that's a boss fight spoilers you have that introduction of ganondorf as a distinct entity and that was carried on in just about every zelda game after that also um began the tradition that many zelda console games continued after that of you obtain an instrument that you learn distinct songs on that you use to manipulate the world and your environments. And that's, that's an element of the series that I really enjoy. Uh, final detail I wanted to mention. This game is originally meant for the 64DD, which was a floppy mm. disk expansion onto the N64 console. That was ultimately... Uh, came out in Japan. They only ever put out like 10 games for it and was, was kind of canned before it ever had a chance to make it stateside. Um, and then they pivoted this game to just be on a standard cartridge instead. But um, it's true for a lot of their games that ended up coming out of the N64. 
just kind of a crazy thing. Is like, yeah, we're going to make a floppy drive for the Nintendo 64. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, while the PlayStation was doing CDs, you know, you right. know, little, little Nintendo's a weird company. Yeah. I'm glad they uh, moved away from that, pivoted pretty early. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, that's my number one. Cannot recommend Ocarina of Time highly enough. Again, not my favorite Zelda game, but I would consider it to be the best game in 1998 and one of the most influential video games ever made. Sure, yeah. Right right behind Pokemon Yellow, yep. Also up there. Hmm. So I, I would say I, I've got a top ten, obviously, that we did for this. My number 11 in spirit and my only honorable mention is legend of zelda ocarina of time because it is a game that i have always wanted to play mm-hmm. but i have never played you should play it it's very good I, I know i should but this goes back to our separate discussion where my time is very limited at the moment and there are so many things that i have not either seen or played or read you know, I gotta gotta be a little bit more choosy. So, well, that's all of all the items on our one through five. We're gonna take a little bit of a break here, and then we're gonna come back to talk about briefly our seven through ten. Any honorable mentions? Maybe I have a couple of dishonorable mentions, and then we're gonna argue over Six what belongs 10. on the unified top ten. Six through ten. Six through ten. You're right. All right. Uh, stay tuned, folks. It's okay. <laughs> Hey, welcome back, everyone. If you made it this far, then you're probably enjoying yourself at least a little bit. And I think you know what I'm going to say if you've listened to a couple of the earlier episodes. But if in any case, if you can give us an honest rating or a review or refer any of your friends to listen to this, that would be fantastic. It would go a really long way to help us get the word out and and just uh, hopefully reach a few more people who like to argue with their friends. Either way, thank you for listening, and we're going to move on to phase two, where we are going to argue over the unified top ten. And prior to that, we are briefly going to go over the remainder of our personal top ten. So here we go. Uh, I only got three items left on my list to talk about, so I'll start with those. Go for it. So at number seven, I've got a game very beloved to me, and Nintendo hates me and won't make another one. It's F-Zero X for the Nintendo 64. Uh, If you're not familiar, fast-paced, difficult, futuristic racing game, sequel to the SNES game. Uh, One of the things I love about it is that it sacrifices visual fidelity for holding a stable 60 60 frames per second. Get a nice smooth experience, and no one does that anymore. I hate it. Hmm. Give me 60 frames. Even if you gotta make the game look worse. Um, number eight, I have Rogue Squadron from Factor 5 and LucasArts hmm. for the Nintendo 64 and the PC. Uh, it's a Star Wars Rogue Squadron. Um, very far from the first space shooter, but one of the earlier arcadey ones that are more approachable for casual audiences. You got multiple different fighters you can control, and you get to blow up the Death Star, so it's a good time. Uh, nine was Spyro, and then ten I have the original Baldur's Gate for PC from Bioware. Um, 
kind of took established uh, computer RPGs like Ultima Bard's Tale and reinvented them along the lines like the Fallout games were doing around the similar time. Uh, it's kind of codifying a new style that went on and be massively popular. Um, the one bummer about Baldur's Gate, it's a little bit hard to go back to because it's based on second edition D&D. And if you're familiar with newer D&D at all, second edition is just wildly different to, to that. And so there's some elements of it that are a little counterintuitive for more modern audiences, but still a great game. Uh, Scott, how about your 6 through 10? There's just some good additions. I admittedly know what F0X is. I've heard of Rogue Squadron, and I definitely know what Baldur's Gate is. I haven't played any of them. So that, that might be a little bit tough for me. But going through my list, number six, I have NFL Blitz 99. Sure. I don't know if you've ever played an NFL Blitz game, but... Yeah, Blitz is great. They are ridiculous and just outlandish, and I love them. And this one in particular was an arcade game exclusive released in 1998 to multiple arcades, and I played it mostly at the bowling alley. So, yeah, good good addition there. Number seven for me was StarCraft. We already went over that one. Number eight is Twisted Metal 3. This one was a game that I did not personally own, but uh, the friend of mine that I hung out with at the time, he had a copy, and... Yeah, we we just spent a lot of time beating each other up and just yelling at each other and kind of getting rowdy. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. Twisted Metal 3. Number nine, I have Mario Party. This is the original Mario Party. Another just really solid game, an introduction of a, a fairly new mini game type genre. And I mean, there's been tons of spinoffs of this. I think we're on. Eight now? Does that sound right? Uh, ten. Ten? Oh my gosh, I don't even know. It so many Mario Party games have spawned from this, but each of them evolving a little bit more. But the original does hold a a nice little spot here in my heart. And number ten, I have Dance Dance Revolution, and this game for the PlayStation, one that I never personally owned, but I. I hung out with a friend of mine. His name's Ken, and maybe, I don't know if you remember him, Ken Beck. This guy had Dance Dance Revolution and two mats, and so we could play wow. together. Yeah, pretty awesome. He's the same guy that, like, when the iToy came out, he got that too. I don't remember that. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, so Dance Dance Revolution, pretty fun game, rhythm gaming. Definitely contributed to my love of Guitar Hero years later. Uh, I do not consider myself a very good dancer by any means, but this game, something about it was just fun. Rhythmically and just getting all kind of sweaty. It's a good time. It is. This is a good party game. So, And of course, playing it again at the arcade as well. Once you start using those with the, uh, the metal... And and the kind of rough set arrows, so the mats aren't sliding around. Uh, it's sure. like it's game more ch- of an optimal game experience there. Oh yeah. So, yep, those are my six through ten, and uh, I'm gonna just throw my last one here. The honorable mention is, of course, Legend of Zelda. So, all right. 
Yeah. Uh, you did, have any other you, honorable mentions? You no, want not really. I looking through the list, like there were a couple that I thought I might want to mention, but I I don't really feel like I played them enough to want. I guess maybe Quest sixty four, another kind of action adventure oh, type game. But that game is, it's a little rough. What, it's not good. It's a little rough. Yeah, but I <laughs> I've definitely played it. But nah, no, I. You can go ahead. What do you got for other honorable mentions? Uh, I'm going to very quickly go through these. Um, uh, first is the uh, shorter block of games that I consider to be great games, but just did not make the list. Uh, Banjo-Kazooie, like I already mentioned. Uh, Crash Bandicoot Warped, Warrior Land 2 and the Game Boy, Marvel vs. Capcom Clash of Superheroes, and uh, Link's Awakening DX, were all 1998 games. Uh, and then... Uh, I have another block here that are games that came out that year that I don't think are like fantastic games, but are worth mentioning. Um, uh, I've cut a few from this list because they were already on your list. So here we go. I'm just going to shotgun these. No particular order. Star Wars Droid Works, Xenogears, Need for Speed 3 Hot Pursuit, Sonic Adventure, Jedi Knight Mysteries of the Sith, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, Star Siege Tribes, Bomberman Hero, Guilty Gear 1, Rival Schools, no one can stop Mr. Domino, Star Trek, Starship Creator, Buck Bumble, and Fallout 2. Uh, the last one I have on here is uh, something that came out in 1998 that I was surprised to see. If you remember the old Snake game on Nokia phones, that came out in 1998. I was not aware of that. And very finally, I have three dishonorable mentions for game- 1998 games that are absolutely terrible. Uh, first up is Tender Loving Care, which is an FMV PC game um, that is a just a really bad depiction of uh, of mental illness and <laughs> tells a really schlocky story around that. Uh, mm-hmm. If you want to see a really fun playthrough of that, go check out GiantBomb.com. Hey You Pikachu, which is a game where you control Pikachu by speaking in a terrible microphone to get him to do things. That game does not work and is bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then finally, a really bad fighting game called Biofreaks that just feels like absolute garbage to play. So, okay. Yeah, that's all the honorable and dishonorable mentions. So, from there, we can move on to our unified top 10 list. So, if we do our normal thing here, working in our Excel spreadsheet, or rather a Google Doc, I'm moving over each of our top fives. And we'll see what's making the list here. I'm going to look at the items on this list, and right away I'm going to say, I think Spider Solitaire is our number 10. Yeah, it is. I'm not even going to argue that point. It, it's uh, a it's, it's fun. A fun game, but it's a very one-dimensional game. And aside from my very specific memories to it, I, it doesn't seem like it's something that even comes close to competing with some of these other ones. So I won't even... Don't even try to argue that. I'm also going to move forward and identify and say I'm not going to get away with not having Pokemon Yellow somewhere near the top, so I'm just going to kind of paste it over there for now. Yeah, why don't you just put it in the number one spot and let's just... I moved it to number two mm, for now. Yeah, you would do that. Um, okay. But, well, yeah. I'm going to um, say StarCraft, given that it was on both our lists, and Spyro, given that it was on both our lists. Probably both of those need to be toward the top. Yeah, I, th- I would say that's fair. For me, um, Spyro is better, but for you, StarCraft is better. And, and I mean, it's close though. I mean, it's a four. 
four number difference and a five number difference. So yeah, really like relatively speaking, fairly close. So we're in a little bit of a unique position here. I don't think we've been in before where I've consumed all of these games and you have not. That's true. Um, I I have not played Metal Gear Solid, Half-Life, or maybe Soul Calibur. I think we've established that there's and definitely not. Life yeah, I mean, that was, a, that was so, a staunch maybe. Um, I think StarCraft, like we said, StarCraft and and Spyro are easy sells to put them fairly high up on the list. Mm-hmm. Of the remaining items on the list, I think pretty clearly to me, 1080 snowboarding is the least good. Is um, it less good than Metal Gear Solid? Easily, definitively okay. so. Okay. Um, I I like ten. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I like every single game. Uh, the the ten games that we have listed here, um, which are briefly, uh, Ocarina of Time, Pokemon Yellow, Starcraft, and Brood War, Spyro the Dragon, Half Life, Soul Calibur, Ban- Metal Gear Solid, Banjo Kazooie, Tiny Snowboarding, Spider Solitaire. Uh, I I like all of these games. These are all good video games. Um. That being said, 1080, I think, is just not... It's not on the same level as most of this other stuff. Scott has uh, gone rogue and has moved all of the items into different positions on the list. It's done. We don't have to worry about it. No arguing. Mm, it's just... Mm, it is what it is. Mm, I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, so, okay, so hold on. Let me make one adjustment. Oh, you are you are putting Pokemon Yellow down to number two to put Ocarina of Time at the top. Yeah, as much as I would love to say Pokemon Yellow is the best game of 1998, it it is the best that I have played. Sure. But I recognize that Legend of Zelda is amazing and critically acclaimed for a reason. And I've seen gameplay of this. I definitely want to play this game. I'm sure if I had played it, it probably would have been my number one as well. Or maybe at least number two. It definitely would have been up there. So Yeah, let's be realistic. You're always going to pick Pokemon over anything else. Yeah, probably. But it's <laughs> it's still... I don't know. It's hard for me to argue that Pokemon Yellow is better. Especially when Pokemon Yellow didn't really offer that much in the way of enhancements for the game itself. It it is largely just a copy paste of red and blue, but yeah. So I I don't I don't even want to try to argue against myself here. Looking at I'll, I'm going to run through the list as you have made it here. Number one, Ocarina of Time. Two, Pokemon Yellow. Three, Starcraft and Brood War. Four, Spyro the Dragon. Five, Banjo Kazooie. Six, Half Life. Seven, Soul Calibur. Eight, Metal Gear Solid. Nine, Ten Eighty Snowboarding, and Ten Spider Solitaire. I don't think I can live with Half Life not being in the top five. Hmm. Hmm. That that's a bit of a complication, then, isn't it? That is a bit of a complication. Um, I would say. Okay, hold on. Let me make a slight adjustment here for my own sanity. I can. I'm. I'm okay with Pokemon at two. I'm comfortable with that. You are bumping Half Life to five. Spyro down to six and Banjo up to four. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. To me, Banjo is better than Spyro. 
And well, for and and to me, Spyro is number nine on my list, and Banjo is kind of an honorary number eleven. So those are honestly, in my mind, very close. Sure. So I am okay fundamentally. I think with Banjo rising above Spyro, I can live with that. And I think I might be able to live with this list as is. And a shorter argument here. Yeah, I. You know, I. I I guess I don't really know what our listeners want to hear. Do they want to hear us argue, or do they want to hear us actually be amenable for once? When it comes to video games, I am definitely out of my element compared to you. Obviously, I've played video games, and I've done a lot of these run-throughs, and I'm very familiar with most, if not all, of these different series and, and franchises, but you dedicate way more time to playing these games than I This is true. I am doing anytime soon. So I guess what I'm trying to say is they're kind of your bag and I think I have to defer to you. I don't have to defer to you for things that I really feel co- like super passionate about, but for a lot of these like like you said you've played all these games. You know how good all of these games are and in most situations you and i tend to agree when it comes to the value of video games so for me not having played them i I tend to agree with you and maybe that's not what people want to hear but that's just the the honest answer all right worst game of 1998 runescape not a game in 1998 that's why it's the worst one (laughs) so bad it didn't even exist yeah it's terrible uh yeah no I I I I can look at this and see I I can see where this list makes sense. Half Life of Five kind of hurts me, not gonna lie, but I think I can live with it. I appreciate that because Banjo Kazooie is slightly better. Hmm. Mm. Very different thing. Yeah. But we've done the science. We've worked it out. And we have a unified top 10 list. I'm going to run it down. Do it up. For the or final down. time. Run it down. Number 10. Spider Solitaire Whew. for Microsoft Windows. Great game. Number 9. 1080 Snowboarding. No, 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 no. 1080. I can't call it 1080. What's from wrong? Nintendo. For the Nintendo 64. Konami's Metal Gear Solid. For the PlayStation 1 at number 8. Namco's Soul Calibur at number 7. For the Dreamcast and Arcades. Insomniac's Spyro the Dragon at number 6 for the PlayStation 1. Valve's Half-Life for the PC at number 5. Rare's Banjo-Kazooie at number 4 for the Nintendo 64. Blizzard Entertainment's StarCraft and Brood War for the PC at number 3. Game Freak's Pokemon Yellow for the Game Boy and Game Boy Color at number two. And for number one, Nintendo's The Legend of Zelda, The Ocarina of Time, the best game of 1998. We've done it. We figured it out. We've done it again, Scott. We, we are the code. continually proving ourselves to be the foremost rankers of, honestly, most things. This might the be the least stupid sequence we've done so far. Yeah, I mean, Half Life is number five, and you know that's that's pretty stupid. But you know, we'll... 
but but it's 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 just stupid enough let's say but five is half of ten so it it just makes sense that's some numerology for you okay well i I think we could probably we good we good we wrap it up i think we're good okay all right that's a podcast hey everyone thanks for taking the time to listen to us argue barely and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did because boy do we love talking to each other on a bi-weekly roughly basis and deciding that our lists are superior and and then yelling at the other person in a semi-constructive way that results in some kind of unified list and bargaining that largely doesn't matter and is still enjoyable somehow. Anyway, uh, if you have show ideas or comments, you can reach out to us on Twitter at stupid sequence, or you can email us at stupid sequence at gmail.com. And our next episode in about two weeks, Josh, uh, you want to, you want to tell the people what our next, uh, what our next topic is going to be? Absolutely. The Brain Trust of Stupid Sequence has put together the idea of we're going to talk about the top 10 worst movie twists. Mm, Yes. Very much looking forward to this movie. Just some really, really stupid twists that why? Why would you do this? You, You ruined a movie or it's just stupid. Why? I haven't built my list yet, but I've definitely put together a kind of a preliminary list. Let me tell you what, there's some movies on this list that made me actively angry at how dumb the twist was. Some cringy moments for sure coming. So you got that to look forward to. Yay. All right. Well, I guess until next time, uh, I've been Scott. And I've been Josh. And remember, with a little practice, you can argue your way into a friendship. Take care, folks. Next uh, Avatar series is going to be uh, like much like Korra was a pro bender. Avatar three Ra is going to be a pro video game player. Amazing. But it's going to be like VR. They're like going to be in the virtual world. Ooh, meta. It'll be meta yeah. in the yeah. metaverse. Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg is the Avatar. <laughs> God. <laughs>